Hello everyone and welcome to the Unanswered Questions True Crime Podcast. I have spent hours and hours investigating this. He basically told her that people have been killed. Journalists, independent investigators, people like that disappeared. It frightened her to the bone. There's more to the story than meets the eye. There were rumors of torture and homicide and sexual abuse, all sorts of egregious, horrendous crimes. He was polygraphed three times. Each of those three showed evasions. His resumes were a skeleton of truth. He was mad at the world, and particularly mad at the government. The study that he commissioned that described a fictional terrorist attack. If people have died over this, it means you're getting close to the truth. You don't have to be a conspiracy theorist to say, what the fuck? Reeves also states that McPherson savagely brutalized his first wife on numerous occasions. On one occasion, when he accused her of having an affair, he tied one of her legs to a tree and the other to the back of his car, started the car, and took up the slack on the ropes and threatened to tear her in half. There was also another story I heard of of when he came home one day and his wife supposedly hadn't got the dinner cooked before he got home, and he got he got really angry about that, and his wife tried to calm him down, and in response to her not having his dinner made before he got home he decided to blast the kitchen and shot up the entire kitchen and put bullet holes in absolutely every part of the kitchen and then had to spend a considerable amount of money renovating it. Letty McPherson was an absolute misogynist and woman hater, woman beater. He had bashed his wife from when they were married in the 1940s and he would often come home or get out of you know remand or something and come home drunk and jealous. Drunk and jealous, poor Lenny, and would bash his wife. One time he came home, dinner wasn't on the table, and he shot up the whole kitchen, include, including the food cooking on the stove. Another time, it was even worse, he bashed her, then he allegedly tied one of her legs to a tree in the garden and tied the other end of the rope to his car and threatened to pull her apart. Now, at that stage, the long-suffering Joy had had it and she decided she'd press charges for attempted murder. But along comes Detective Ray Kelly, who manages to smooth things over and mediate a separation agreement between Joy and McPherson. Now we come to George David Freeman. George David Freeman, born 22nd of January 1935 and died on the 12th of March 1990, was a Sydney bookmaker, racing identity and illegal casino operator. He was linked to the Sydney drug trade during the 1970s and 1980s, was named in several royal commissions into organised crime and had links with American crime figures. Freeman served several prison terms for theft between 1951 and 1968, but was never brought to trial for any of his later alleged crimes receiving only monetary fines for SP bookmaking in the mid-1980s. Freeman survived a murder attempt in 1979, was married twice, published an autobiography, and died in 1990 of heart failure related to asthma and pethidine addiction. George Freeman was an interesting, very, very interesting guy. He, um, it was um, after the murder of Colin Winchester um, in Canberra the federal police weren't getting anywhere with the investigation and I was asked by a very senior officer from there and I think I was at the National Crime Authority at the time. I'll just, I'll just go back a little bit. I arrested Freeman twice for SP bedding. Um, he, he was operating from 2A Manila Place where he lived at Yowie Bay, a huge big mansion of a house. He had, he had rock-wheeler dogs and uh, Dobermans in his yard um, I got some cops to go to the gate 
and throw some meat over to feed the dogs and then we bailed over on the other side, went inside and arrested him with his virtually hand in the till. There was bedding material everywhere. Charged him, took him to court, got a conviction. I decided six months later to do it again. So and this time we had to be a bit more sophisticated. So I actually rang him from a telephone box and said, George, if you don't get out to your gate and let the police in, I'm gonna, we're going to shoot your dogs and come in anyway. So when they got in there, he... Um, He'd had disappearing paper. This is how sophisticated they were. So as soon as I'd rung him, they'd thrown all the paper into trays of water and it just disappeared. All the evidence disappeared. And one of the guys I was working with, when they got in, George had missed one sheet and he tried to stuff it into a coffee cup and Bob was able to pull it out and retrieve about two-thirds of it. And based on that, we got a conviction when he went to court. And um, how are you going to use this tape? Because, can I use a bit of language on this? Yeah, that's fine. Because when he went to court and we convicted him, he came outside the court and he walked up to you and he said, uh, you're a c And I said, oh, thanks, George. I said, coming from you, that's a real compliment. And um, anyway, we, we parted our ways and uh, it was just before Christmas and we were, I was living at Miranda at the time and the telephone rang and George was on the other end. He said, oh, it's George Freeman, Jeff. And I, I lived near him. I didn't live that far away. Actually, I used to have a little tinny and I used to go around and watch his place from a boat while I was fishing and uh, he said you know he said I, he said, I, um, I used to reckon you're a he said but actually I admire you he said because he said I know you're straight and he said I know you're a cop that wouldn't walk up to me in the street and put a gun in my pocket but if I had a gun in my pocket you'd arrest me for it and he said and I, you know he said I, I, I admire you for that and I didn't know how to take it I just I, I said how'd you get my phone number he said oh, I've got ways and means of getting your phone number Anyway, um, one thing led to another. When Winchester got shot, Peter Lamb, who was the Deputy Commissioner in the Federal Police, rang me up and said, Jeff, we need someone to talk to George. And he said, we don't think you'd talk to a federal cop. And he said, and you, he said you know, you're the only person I think he would trust to speak to. And he said, uh, we want you to go and speak to him to see if he can put the feelers out and find out. We, we, he said, we're getting nowhere with the Winchester investigation. Put the feelers out and see if there's anything there that might help. So I tried to ring George at home and, and there was no answer and then uh, I rang Lenny McPherson and, I, and Len was an informative, registered informant of mine at the time. I rang him up and, and I said, I need to speak to George and he said, uh, where are you? I said, I'm at home. He said, I'll get him to ring you. Within two minutes the phone rang. That was the, that this is the contact that these people had, you know, the, incredible how fast they can get a message through. And George said, uh, oh, I'm down on the stud farm down at Mittagong. And uh, I said, all oh, right. He said, I've had a bit of an operation. I'm just recuperating down here. I said, I need to speak to you. And he said, uh, why don't you come down? And I said, I'll meet you in a coffee shop at Mittagong. He said, no, no. He said, come to the, come to the property. He said, uh, I haven't had it that long. He said, I'll show you over it. So I said to my wife, I'm going down to see George Freeman. She said, what, by yourself? And I said, yeah, I'll go down by myself. I said, like, I, you know, in a funny sort of way, I trusted him, you know. Strange thing to say, but I just, you just get that feeling. So I went down there and he met me on the front for Andrew, he had his pyjamas and dressing gown on and he had uh, either kidney stones or gallstones taken out. He had been pretty crook. And um, it's like a big kid, you know. He said, oh, he said, you know, come on, I'll show you the property. So he took me over and showed me some stables he had just had built and we're sitting in the lounge room and his wife, Georgina, he'd, he'd divorced from his previous wife, Marcia, and, and uh, he was married to Georgina, who was the daughter of a, a Sydney doctor. And had, and had had a you know, good upbringing, good education. And, and it was a classical insight into the criminal sort of um, 
wife sort of a situation and why they put up with these people. We're sitting in the lounge room and Georgina walked in and she said, Jeff, would you like to stay for tea? And I thought, we said, no, I shouldn't do that. And I said, oh, no, thanks. I said, no, I won't stay for tea. She said, well, look, I've just got some sausages and some green prawns and I'm going to put them in the barbecue and I'm going to toss a salad. She said, so you're welcome to stay. And I thought, well, I will stay because it'll give me a chance just to get to know Freeman a little bit better. So I said, yeah, OK, I'll stay. And she said, George, would you like the barbecue? And he sat there and he said, Georgina, fuck off. He said, can't you see I'm talking business? Just fuck off. Do it yourself. And she walked out. This is hard to understand for a layman, I guess, but she walked out like a faithful dog. And it just gave me that insight into why these people hook up with people like this who... And George was a violent criminal in his young days. He spent enormous amount of time in institutions. He had this massive control and respect in relation to organised crime, particularly surrounding uh, gambling and, uh, and betting um, and protection. And, and here he was, that's the way he spoke to her. She didn't take offence in any way whatsoever. She just went out, lit that barbecue, did the cooking, and we went out there later on and had a meal. And then the following Saturday, he was back home in his place at Gaimier Bay. He'd moved from Yowie Bay. And he rang me up at home and he said, I've got something for you. I told him, when I spoke to him in the house about trying to make some inquiries about the Winchester murder, he said, he said, I've, he said look, I've only ever had corrupt dealings with cops all my life. He said, um, he said as far as I'm concerned, he said, you know, coppers, the coppers I've dealt with are just low bastards. And he said, but you need them to do things for you. And he said, um, but I'll, I'll, I'll see what I can do. He said, but look, I can't get involved. He said, otherwise I'll be regarded as a dog amongst, you know, my people. And he said, so you've got to keep me out of it. And I said, okay, no. I said, I'll, I'll give you that guarantee. I said, I'll keep you out of it. So on the Saturday morning, he rang me up and said, I've got something for you. And I said, um, what is it? He said... I'll show you when you get here. I said, did you have to pay for it? And he said, yes. I said, how much did you pay for it? He said, $450. And I rang Peter Lamb and I said, Pete, I'm going down to George's place. He's got something for me. I said, I need to get some money out of the bank. Um, I said, uh, and pay him. And when I went down there, um, I, I gave the 450 bucks to Freeman. He said, I don't want it. I said, no, no. I said, I'm not going to owe you anything. I said, you take it. And... Um, and he started laughing. I said, what are you laughing at? He said, you're sitting on it. I got up and underneath the lounge cushion he pulled out a gun with a silencer in it. And he said, I don't know what it's been used in. He said, it's hot. All I know is it's hot. Um, it's been used in a crime recently. If it helps, so be it. He said, but I can't, it can't be traced back to me. I said, okay. So they actually, I handed the gun over, they tested it and it had been used in a recent murder in Melbourne but it wasn't connected with Winchester. But I, I sort of held hopes after that that I'd be able to get closer to Freeman and probably in his, as he got on and, and aged that he might, like I'd, I'd hope for McPherson, actually sit down and start to reveal a lot of the, the, the background and the behind the scenes of sort of organised crime in Sydney. Unfortunately, I never got that opportunity because he died of an asthma attack and his life was cut short.
Now we come to Christopher Dale Flannery. Chris Flannery, nicknamed Mr. Rentacle, born 1948 and disappeared on the 9th of May 1985, is alleged to have been an Australian contract killer. Coming from a working class background and a culture that was suspicious of police, it was no surprise that after leaving Melbourne, he entered a life of crime and gang warfare that only ended with his disappearance. I think Flannery was the only person I've ever heard of that, that ran around saying, oh, I'm gonna kill people for money. I don't drop my price for nobody. Get it? I am a hitman. Call me Rent-A-Kill. Flannery's reputation was that he was a, a psychopathic ratbag. I saw him break a guy's teeth with the muzzle of a gun, and I was sure he was going to shoot him right then and there. Hey, Chris! Hey, no! The job was this person had to die. They brought uh, Christopher Dale Flannery up to uh, do away with me. Chris Flannery was the person who shot me at my house that evening. I remember him telling me about um, the art of killing. He knew all about bodies and what hurt and, and where to hurt them in the shortest possible time. And um, he said, the only thing about this game, Craig, is the fucking noise. And I said, well, there's got to be more things that worry you than the noise. And he goes, yeah, not getting paid. It was being rumoured that you had been retained as a hitman. Oh, that's incredible. Just rubbish. You have heard these, though? Yes, I have. And what's, what's your answer to it's that? It's just ridiculous. Totally untrue. Can you tell us how you came to be connected with Mark Clarkson and with Roger Wilson? Well, Mr Clarkson uh, gave us some advice uh, on a business nature through a discotheque that we, had, we were having sort of trouble with. And uh, he came to advise us. And we had a meeting and Mr Wilson turned up at the meeting. And that's the only time I've seen Mr Wilson. So on the day in question, I was there with some, some other detectives. And the first person we met was Mrs Flannery. And she put her head into the office and uh, it was very nice and, and, and saying, look, I'm here to collect a box. And of course, the guys came in and, and then these blokes realised that they were trapped. I mean, these blokes were incredibly toey. Uh, we've described Flannery as being obviously a psycho. Well, then, of course, it, it developed into a, a free-for-all. And I went up down on the, on the railway tracks with Flannery and finally got over the top of him and got some handcuffs on him and they took him back to the CIB. He was taken back to be questioned. They're in a room where there's about six detectives they take the handcuffs off Chris, and Chris attacks them straight away. He breaks the jaw of one of the top detectives there. Here's a guy who is one out, surrounded by police. He's just been given a flogging on the way in, and he takes them all on, attacks the main guy. Rogerson's there, sees it. Knows that there's something with, that this guy's got that very few people have got. He hated the druggies, you know, he hated the drug dealers, he hated them. He was old school, he was a dinosaur, and he hadn't woken up to the fact that, you know, drugs were the in thing and, you know, hitmen and bank robberies and $20,000 TAB robberies were the old thing. So Chris, you know, he didn't like that and he didn't like Barry and he didn't like that whole crew, the Sayers crew, Chubb, all of them, he didn't like any of them. So they had a falling out and... I said, mate, this is going to turn nasty here. And he goes, oh, I don't give a rat's ass how nasty it's going to get. And he just walked up to him and he goes, why don't you pick six of your best blokes 
to come out in this car park. And Barry said, oh, fuck off, you know, like six blokes, what are you talking about? And Chris undoes his suit jacket and he just pulls it back like that and he's just got this snub-nosed 38 poked in his pants. And he goes, one, two, three, four, five, six. So anytime you're ready, boys. And he walked out to the car park and that whole pub emptied into as many cabs as they could and left. I've seen him put shots in, gunshots into roofs of people's houses over, you know, because he didn't feel they were giving him enough respect. I've seen him threaten people that owed him money. I had seen him explode on occasions. I've seen him break a guy's teeth with the muzzle of a gun. And I was sure he was going to shoot him right then and there. And he just grabbed this bloke by the hair, shoved him up against the wall of that theatre, and shoved this gun into his mouth so violently that it pushed all his teeth out and split his lip. And he was wide-eyed and absolutely off the planet. We were in the Clare Valley Hotel on a, I think it was a Thursday night actually, and um, Chris got into an altercation there with a bloke and his wife. And the girl um, threatened him with a stiletto and he king hit this girl and he hurt her quite badly. But he just lost his temper, he'd had too much to drink, he didn't like the bloke and he clocked his wife. He started reaching for his gun and I thought he was so drunk that he would shoot both of them and so I just king hit him. Now we come to the Smith and Henry group. Led by Nettie Smith and his associate and bodyguard Graham Abo Henry, this criminal group was mainly involved in armed robberies and drug trafficking. The gang largely operated in Sydney's eastern suburbs. The group included Warren Frenchy Lanfranchi, Harvey Jones and Danny Brain Chubb. In 1976, Nettie Smith formed a business relationship with New South Wales police detective Roger Rogerson, who is absolutely infamous and notorious. Now we get into who Nettie Smith was. Nettie Smith who was one of the most well-known and feared criminals in the 1980s. Nettie was a career criminal, a long history of convictions for thieving, assaults, robberies, armed robberies. A large man, physically overpowering. The only way you'd hold him down would be with a piece of 4 by 2 around the ears. He was a very violent character, um, very mean, um, just a vile creature. But he had some powerful friends. According to him, he was uh, involved in large-scale police corruption. He was given a green light to um, uh, commit armed robberies, to be involved in drugs. The bloke was effectively bulletproof. He could do what he wanted in this town, anything. Smith has repeatedly and very publicly said he was provided with police assistance to the point of being dropped off and picked up from armed robberies in marked cars and being provided with police equipment and uniforms to conduct armed robberies. So a fairly significant relationship. Arthur Stanley Nettie Smith, born November 27th of 1944 and died on the 8th of September 2021, was an Australian criminal who was convicted of drug trafficking, theft, rape, armed robbery and murder. Smith served a life sentence since 1989 and was imprisoned in Lithgow Correctional Centre after he was moved from Long Bay Correctional Centre in New South Wales, where he spent 14 years. Smith's partner in crime, Graham Abbo Henry, claimed in Abbo, A Treacherous Life, the Graham Henry story, that the gang of criminals led by Smith committed crimes worth Australian $25 million in the 1980s. Now we come to the McCann-Domican group. 
Led by Barry McCann and his associate Irish-born British standover man Thomas Tough Tommy Domakin, this group was mainly involved in drug trafficking and were considered to be a major rival group. Like Smith's gang, McCann's gang operated out of the Lansdowne Hotel in Chippendale during the 1980s. McCann's gang was involved in a feud with Smith's gang and later got into a tit-for-tat feud with Chris Flannery. The group included Barry Sugar Croft, Terry Ball, George Savas, Victor Camilleri and Kevin Theobald. McCann was later shot dead at H.J. Mahoney Park in Marrickville on the 27th of December 1987. Now we come to the Honoured Society. A Calabrian and Dragatha group that were involved in the marijuana trade in the Riviera district during the 1970s, the Honoured Society were reported to run a vast marijuana trade between Sydney and Melbourne. Robert Tromboli, Gianfranco Frank Tizzoni, Antonio Sergi, born 1935, and Antonio Sergi, born 1950, Dominic Sergi, Francisco Sergi, and Francisco Barbro were reportedly part of this group. Even though the Honoured Society weren't directly involved in the Sydney gangland war, some members were reportedly involved in the heroin trade. Now we get into investigation of the Sydney gangland wars. At the time of the Sydney gangland war, no investigations into the killings were carried out due to police corruption. During the Royal Commission, Task Force Snowy, headed by the New South Wales Police Assistant Commissioner John Laycock, was established to investigate the killings. Since 1995, Task Force Snowy carried out the investigation into 14 gangland killings linked to the Sydney gangland war. As a result of Task Force Snowy's investigations, the New South Wales Police established additional police investigative task forces to investigate more unsolved killings attributed to the Sydney gangland war. Now we come to the timeline of events. So for now, I'm going to go through every consecutive year and the things that happened on particular dates. So we have to start off with 1981. 27th of June of 1981, 22-year-old drug dealer and standover man Warren Frenchy Land Frenchy was shot dead by New South Wales detective Roger Rogerson on Dangau Place in Chippendale. Land Frenchy was a known associate of Nettie Smith and Abbo Henry. At the time of his death, Land Frenchy was under investigation for pulling a gun on a police officer. It was alleged that Smith drove Land Frenchy to a meeting where Land Frenchy was going to pay Rogerson $10,000 to make the investigation disappear. When Land Frenchy arrived, Rogerson produced a firearm and shot Land Frenchy in the chest. Land Frenchy's girlfriend and sex worker, Sally Ann Huckstep, another person who'll do a podcast episode on, stated that after the shooting of Land Frenchy, Rogerson took the 10000 as Land Frenchy was laying on the ground dying. Then we have the 21st of December 1981. 42-year-old former lawyer Brian Alexander disappeared after leaving the Kingshead Tavern in South Hertzville. Alexander was a known associate of Robert Trimboli, Sydney-based New Zealand drug importer and member of the Mr. Asia syndicate Terry Clark, and had ties to a number of corrupt detectives. On the 25th of March 1981, Alexander was charged, along with two former federal narcotics agents, for leaking confidential information to Clark. At the time of his disappearance, Alexander was subpoenaed to testify at the steward Royal Commission about his dealings with Clark and information he received from corrupt detectives that was passed on to Clark. According to Nettie Smith, Alexander was picked up by two detectives that Smith knew and was brought on board Smith's boat where they took Alexander out into the bay and threw him overboard. Now we come to 1982. 13th of August 1982. Drug dealer and former painter and docker Terence Basham and his partner Susan Smith were shot dead at their farmhouse in Merwillumba. Basham was part of a drug ring with importers Bruce Snapper Cornwell and Barry Bull. According to the mastermind of the drug ring, George Tisgolis, Basham fell out with Bull and Cornwell over profits from the drug ring, resulting in Basham assaulting Bill. And in retaliation, Cornwell and Bull paid Chris Flannery 50000 to murder Basham. Flannery shot Basham, wounding him. Flannery 
Flannery then shot Susan Smith in the head, killing her instantly. Flannery turned back to Basham and shot him in the head, killing him. Flannery left the scene, leaving Basham and Smith's two-year-old daughter alive and alone in the house. 10th of November 1982, former painter and docker Leslie Johnny Cole was shot dead in the garage of his home at Kyle Bay. At the time of his murder, Cole was working for Frederick Paddles Anderson. Cole had recently survived another attempt on his life when he was shot in the leg a week before his murder. Cole's son, Mark Moran, became a major criminal figure in the Melbourne underworld and was shot dead during the Melbourne gangland war on the 15th of June 2000. It is suspected that Cole's murder was a result of an unpaid debt. I will also cover the Melbourne gangland war in another podcast episode. Now we come to 1983. January 1983. 42-year-old drug dealer Luton Chu was shot dead at Royal National Park near Waterfall. At the time of his murder, Chu was on bail for drug trafficking along with his associate James Murray and Murray's girlfriend Jennifer Ann Lewis. Murray and Lewis were charged with Chu's murder. While on remand in prison, Lewis was found dead in his cell after hanging herself with a cord from her dressing gown on the 25th of February 1983. In 2001, Nettie Smith was charged with Chu's murder, but at the request of Chu's family, the Charges against Smith were dropped. 15th of July, 1983. 29-year-old used car salesman and brothel owner Harvey Jones disappeared after leaving his home. At the time of his disappearance, Harvey Jones was on bail for theft of gold bullion. According to Nettie Smith's autobiography, To Catch and Kill Your Own, Jones made an arrangement to pay Rogerson 60000 to have the gold theft charges dismissed. On the 14th of July, 1983, Jones was involved in an incident where he fired his gun in front of witnesses into the ceiling of Sheila's Tavern in North Sydney, prompting another investigation into Jones. Jones's skeletal remains were found buried at Botany Bay Beach on the 26th of March 1995 by a man walking his dog. While in prison for tow truck driver Ron Flavel's murder, Nettie Smith confessed to his cellmate that on the night of the disappearance, Jones met Nettie Smith at the Iron Duke Hotel in Alexandria. He left with Smith and an associate and drove to Botany Bay Beach when Nettie Smith shot Jones with a 38 revolver before burying him in the sand dunes. When Smith's cellmate asked for details, Nettie Smith stated that Jones was out of control and drawing unwanted attention. He also said that he blew his heart out with a big 357. On the 15th of September 1998, Nettie Smith was convicted of Jones' murder. Harvey Jones is a very small-time player on this scene. Uh, he earned his living managing a brothel at Homebush. He was a used car salesman at another point. A uh, loudmouth, tall, gangly fellow who nonetheless seemed to throw his weight around in pubs, uh, had propensities to wearing loud fake jewellery, thought he was, you know, he was hanging around with um, the man of the moment and would be seen to be a serious gangster if he's able to go out drinking with Nettie Smith and Ned would give him the time of day. But he doesn't seem to have really added much to, to Smith's business or have caused him anything other than trouble. Harvey had been charged with some thefts of some gold bullion. There was a court case pending. And he had been assembling the money, he said, to bribe police to have those charges fixed. And according to Nettie Smith in one of his autobiographies, finding the money wasn't going to be difficult for Harvey and Nettie would help him with the exchange. But only 24 hours before the deal was to be done, Harvey was making himself unpopular. He was involved in an incident at Sheila's nightclub at North Sydney. He had a habit of uh, going to nightclubs, pulling out his revolver, letting one go on the roof to uh, the horror of the patrons. That caused uh, police inquiries and it brought some unwanted attention to, uh, to him and also to the people he was actually hanging around with. The next night, 
July 15, 1983, Harvey Jones was to make the $60,000 payment in return for his charges being dropped. He told his mother that he was going to see Nettie Smith that night for a meeting, according to her, and that was the last time that she had seen him. But in his book, Nettie claims Harvey never turned up. And after waiting for hours, he called Mrs Jones, wondering where her son was. Smith was recorded a few days later, saying that he contacted Harvey's mother and was concerned about his, his welfare. Nobody uh, had seen him or heard of him or heard what happened to him. It's just one of those sort of dead investigations. But um, other than people who knew him directly and noticed his absence, uh, Harvey Jones disappearing off the face of the planet wasn't going to cause a great deal of um, public concern. Nettie started bragging to him about murders that he'd committed and the informant was quite sickened by the way that Nettie would cold-bloodedly told him about these murders. He told me about um, a certain murder that he did and it gave me nightmares and that's when I thought, well, you know, maybe this is a bit more than just being a crim in a jail. Maybe I should do something about it. So I contacted the police and the operation began. With the cooperation of Mr Brown, we were able to capture a lot of these conversations about all these unsolved murders going back many years on an authorised listening device tape. I lay awake many, many nights thinking about it and thinking about the consequences and whether I'd be able to do it or not. And I couldn't find a reason not to. I think in total there was mention of 14 separate murders. Some of them were gangland related, some of them were drug rip-offs, and some of them were revenge killings. One of them was the murder of Harvey Jones. Mr Brown ran a very high risk. One word out of place, Nettie was not stupid completely. Um, if he just said the wrong thing, well, he would have been in fairly grim straits. I was thinking, shit, I hope he doesn't hear the, the tape recorder. That's about all I was thinking. <laughs> um, yeah. But he persevered and um, he teased a lot of detail, a lot of information from Nettie. In a lot of ways, it seemed to me that the only reason that he killed Harvey was because Harvey annoyed him. I never met Harvey, but from what I did find out about him, it seemed that he was a bit of a, a party boy. We went over the top a few times, but. He certainly didn't deserve to pay for it with his life, for no more than upsetting the bloke. But that's how things were back then. To use his words, he um, elsewhere in the book indicates that uh, most big-time criminals come undone because of their mouth and uh, they tell too many people too many things. And here is he falling for the same trap. The tapes themselves would have allowed us to go out and charge Nettie forthwith, but that would have been uh, quite foolish to do it because uh, 
any brief that hinges on a confession per se, well, wouldn't get past first base. And you'd just be wasting your time. It'd be nothing worse than charging Nelly than watching him walk. What they needed was a body. And for months, they searched the area mentioned by Nettie on the tapes. I've flown over, I've driven over, I've walked through. I knew it better than I really wanted to. Um, but I didn't find Harvey Jones. Um, a man walking his dog found Harvey Jones. I was watching the news and it said how a bloke had been walking his dog along the beach at Botany and found human remains. And that was pretty much where Nettie said it was on the tape. And I said, oh, I, I bet that's Harvey Jones. My first impressions was, well, uh, here's one brief for Ned. And Nettie had given them a challenge. Now, next on Unanswered Questions. 57-year-old trucking company owner Edward Bill Kavanagh and his partner, 21-year-old Carmelita Lee, were shot dead in the bedroom of their home in Hoxton Park. Kavanagh was reported to be an associate of Robert Tromboli and other members of the Honoured Society and was alleged to have been using his business as a front for the marijuana trade between Sydney and Melbourne. 